questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. In these turbulent times, just about every solution you can think of has been put forth by someone, somewhere, as a way to calm the waters and live with more happiness and ease. But the fact is, you cannot think your way to better life. Change isn't something your mind can accomplish alone. It calls for mind and body to work together in a deeper unity than you may ever have imagined. Tonight, we'll learn how our cultural beliefs affect the diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment of disease. The difference between growing older, which we all do, and quote-unquote aging, our culture's standards, which we can learn not to do. What happens when we move, quote-unquote, beyond the pale of our tribe's expectations? How to navigate adversity using uncertainty as a guide? Tonight, we give you biocognitive tools for a healthy life. Join me in experiencing a paradigm shift in which the myths of doom are shattered by the science of hope. Survival takes a backseat to meaning, and fear gives way to love. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Dr. Mario Martinez is a clinical neuropsychologist who specializes in how cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. He proposes, based on credible research evidence, that longevity is learned and the causes of health are inherited. He has studied healthy centenarians, people 100 years or older, worldwide, and found that only 20 to 25% can be attributed to genetics. The rest is related to how they live and the cultural beliefs they share. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success, that teaches his theory and practice of biocognitive science to the general public. In addition to longevity, he also explains why our immune system is not just a protector. Instead, it responds to the cultural premises we learn to perceive the world. And directly from Nashville, Tennessee, I would like to welcome Dr. Mario Martinez. Hello, Mario. Welcome back. How are you? Hi, Mel. It's uh, doing well. Haven't talked to you in a while, but it's, uh, it's a pleasure. It's been, I believe, uh, eight years. You were with me on Sanitas. We did a stellar interview. So if anybody wants to listen to that, I'm not going to repeat a lot of what we discussed there because there was a lot. But you have new material now. Basically, what you're discussing now is a lot of longevity. This time we're discussing the mind-body self, how longevity is culturally learned and the causes of health are inherited. How did you get into longevity, the blue zones, the telomeres, and all of this that fascinates us so much? Uh, started about 20 years ago. I wanted to find out uh, what uh, what is a good theory of uh, of longevity because uh, what's happening with uh, gerontology, the part of medicine that studies uh, the aging process, is that they're looking at the illnesses of aging rather than the causes of health of growing older, which is what I do. And uh, so I wanted to find out what works and what works is centenarians, people who are 100 years or older and they're in good health. Uh, so I was looking at the healthy centenarians. And I found that, uh, as others have found, uh, Butner's and other, uh, that genetics is only 20 to 25 percent, no more. The rest is how they view the world. It's not even diets, not uh, socioeconomics. All those things help, but they don't really determine the longevity. And what I found was that there were four factors that we'll be discussing that actually are unique to these people. And I study them all over the world, um, all five continents. Uh, and there it's pretty unique. But then 
the most exciting part, which is I, what, what's new here from our last conversation, is that I'm working now with a, a world-class uh, longevity center in Poland. They have offices in Poland and Germany, and they're doing biological markers that can identify your, of course, your chronological age is what you are. And then based on epigenetic markers, they can look at what your biological age is. So you can have chronological age and biological age, which is how your cells are aging. And that's more important than how old you are. But the interesting and exciting research that I'm doing is that I developed the questionnaire that uh, identifies the four factors. So we could look at the four factors to see where you're high, where you're low, and then correlate that with your biological markers, with uh, the usual things, uh, uh, for example, uh, your uh, cholesterol and things like that. But more than that is the uh, inflammatory kinds of uh, markers that actually determine your biological age. So we can look at that. But then the most exciting thing about it is that once we do that and we correlate, let's say you're high on one factor and uh, you're low on another factor on the uh, biological, then we can do interventions to actually reverse your biological age without without medications or any kind of sometimes you supplement is basically the way what what we call in neuroscience the default mode which is the goggles that you use to look at the world so that's the most exciting thing that we're doing and this will be world class no one's ever done this before what is the reaction of the medical industry to this type of research well uh, for the most part it's good because you, this is hard data this is a uh, when you find that the uh, that correlations that 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 you have, for example, with anti-inflammatories uh, that you have in your body, and it correlates to people. For example, let's say you're 70, and your biological age is 50. It's basically determined by how your uh, glycan and other kinds of um, markers are actually uh, functioning, and then you correlate it, and and you might find, for example, all right, this is correlated with people who are 50 not people who are 70. So you might be 70 uh, chronologically, but biologically, the way that you're aging, which is uh, the inflammation is really what you need to look at, you're, you're 50. So it's it's real data that determines how you're aging based on, on how the, the cell biology, how how your cells are aging. So for the most part, it's it's taken very well because these are scientists. These are people that are that are well-trained scientists who have who are doing this work and we're testing it with different countries and different uh, groups of people and find that uh, that it's a, it's a very powerful way to uh, to look at it but the most exciting thing about it is that you can actually reverse the way that the uh, that the cells are aging this is so fascinating because even the fact that when somebody says i know it's impolite but when people say how old are you and you immediately think of your age, are we communicating that to ourselves to program ourselves? I remember years ago when people used to live maybe to 65, then 75, now it's 82. It's almost like we're being told, we're telling our body to just live to a certain age. Do we have to lie to ourselves and say, my chronological age is this, but I feel 35? There's no question about that. I don't even tell my age. And, and, and it's very important that you don't. Uh, I, I've, I've talked to uh, many times to Christian Northrup, uh, who's a, a good friend. And she, when they ask her her age, she'll say, Mario doesn't want me to tell my age, so I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason for it is that we create, here I'm going to talk psychoneurology. We create portals, cultural portals, that tell you how you should behave, how you should live, how you should dress, and sometimes even how you get sick. And these portals are infancy, childhood, adolescent, young adult, and especially middle age, and then uh, senior uh, or, or older. And those portals are a perception that we learn culturally, and that perception is too powerful for you to fight by intellectually saying, no, I'm, I'm feeling better, I'm feeling my age. So... The best thing to do is you don't tell your age. Uh, how old are you? Uh, that's not interesting to me. Uh, do you have problems telling your age? No, you have problems wanting to know my age. So what it does then is it gets you out of that concern 
because you lose either way. Somebody says, oh, you're looking really young for your age, which means that you shouldn't. Or, oh, you're looking older. Or, see, you, it, it pegs you psychoneuroimmunologically into a particular age. So, for example, if you are in a culture that says that middle age is 45, you're going into your, your, your mind and your body and your biology is already preparing itself to 45. Okay, this is what happens at 45. A day before 45, you're not middle-aged. But when you reach 45, then you're middle-aged. Then the culture will admonish you to live within that. You wear something that's not middle-aged and say, what, are you trying to look like a teenager? Well, what are you doing? You want to go back to school? No, you got to save for uh, for your retirement. And admonishing you to stay within that uh, portal, in that portal, then your biology will respond to it. Examples? Your biology will respond to your culture beliefs. So, for example, in uh, I lived in Uruguay for a while, and there, women with menopause, when when they have the uh, the uh, hot flashes, they call them bochorno, which means shame. And shame, we know now, psychoneurologically, causes inflammation. So, the women there, they call it shame, even the doctors will call it shame, even though they know it's hormonal. They'll say that she's having the symptoms of shame instead of calling it uh, what it is. So really, in those the, countries, they, they call it bochorno down there? That's a bochorno, shame? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, bochorno in, in Argentina and in, uh, in, uh, in Uruguay, but here they call it the, the curse. So it's not any better. <laughs> so then women in those countries have more symptoms. They have more hormonal problems. Their libido drops, their self-esteem drops, and they get frumpy and they get they begin to look that way. And you figure, well, it's middle age. It's got to be, or it's got to be the um, the the hormonal process and uh, your menstruation and all that, and the loss of menstruation, all the reductionistic things that are real but not sufficient. You go to Japan, and they call it konenki, which means the second the second spring or the second opportunity. Women don't have those problems. Their self esteem goes up. Their libido goes up, and they become models for other women. Uh, in uh, in the sense of wisdom, totally cultural. Fascinating. Doesn't shame trigger inflammation? Yes, of course. Shame. If if and but look how cultural it is. Uh, the the Asian cultures are more collectivist. Our cultures are more individualist. If you shame someone and they accept it as shame that that has, that person has been put down, it's been shown already many times that you begin to secrete molecules of inflammation like tumor necrosis factor and interleukins and things that cause inflammation. And my theory states that the brain and the immune system, because the immune system have to understand the brain, are cultural. They're bioinformationally cultural. So if I shame you, you will have inflammation. And I've worked with uh, many, many women with inflammatory kinds of illnesses, autoimmune, uh, fibromyalgia, and rheumatoid arthritis. And every single time, there have been few exceptions, they have some kind of a shaming wound, some kind of archetypal wound that I call shame. So what they're doing is they're constantly secreting inflammatory molecules, which to some point confuses the immune system, and there's some indication that, that, it, that it pushes it into autoimmune kinds of problems. So there's no question about it. But if you're in this culture, and I say something to you, you're so stupid, you take it as a, as a personal individual thing. But in Asia, and in, in Asian countries, it's very collective. It's, it's if you shame the family, or if you shame the group, or if you shame the country, that's when the inflammation then begins to, to kick in. Not only are they collectivists, I mean, throughout Asia, but in Japan in particular, but their they're, they're saving face philosophy is so ingrained Anything if you tell the truth but offend someone, the courts rule in their favor in a defamation lawsuit. If you even if you're right, honor and saving face are crucial to the Japanese culture. Yes, very much, very much. And and then that that's cultural, and you learn the cultural beliefs. And why is this? Uh, people will talk about the mind and body that they communicate with each other, but nobody tells you why or how that happens. So as you know, in my work, uh, it's it's really a combination of uh, neuroscience, cultural anthropology, psychoneurology. So you have to go to anthropology to understand this. So 
as Homo sapiens, the modern humans, we're about 150,000 years old. And about maybe 40,000 years, we develop consciousness and language. Consciousness, anthropologists will tell you, started when we, when we started burying our dead. And not burying our dead only for sanitary reasons. The dead were buried with trinkets and things that were considered to be valuable. Also, at that time, language comes on and you start using trinkets that have no longer a functional need as a tool. That requires a tremendous neuropsychological abstractive ability and a language that comes. So then, before the language, you had grunts and you had really a lot of epigenetic qualities of uh, your senses. You could smell a lion 300 feet away. But then language comes on and your brain is used to smelling the, the lion and to secreting the cortisol and the norepinephrine and all that because it's an alarm. Then language comes on and you can say, there's a lion 300 feet. The brain had to understand that as being something beyond the senses and the immune system had to respond to that. And this is why language is bioinformational. And this is when you say things, you're saying bioinformational things they are not empty words because of the transition of when we develop consciousness and language. You know, I, I don't mean to, to talk about somebody else's work for a second, but I just remember Margaret Mead's quote. You probably know it. Years ago, anthropologist Margaret Mead was asked yeah. by a student what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture. And the student expected Mead to talk about fish hooks or clay pots or grinding stones. But no, Mead said that the first sign of civilization is an ancient culture was a femur, a thigh bone that had been broken and then healed. Mead explained that in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. You cannot run from danger. Get to the river for a drink or hunt for food. You are meat for prowling beasts. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. A broken femur that has healed is evidence that someone has taken time to stay with the one who fell, has bound up the wound, has carried the person to safety, and has tended the person through recovery, helping someone else through difficulties where civilization starts. So, Mario, we are our, at our best when we serve others. This is what makes us civilized. No, of course. And and that's that's what consciousness is. Uh, uh, because before consciousness, there was, there was no present, past, and future. We take it for granted, but there was no no past and future. Um, <laughs> actually, this is going to sound a little politically incorrect, but I had a, a very um, gentleman, gentlemanly uh, professor of uh, anthropology, and he spoke very softly, and he wore a three-piece suit. But he he was very to the point. He said, "Before, before consciousness, and you saw something in front of you, you only had two choices: do I eat it or do I fornicate it?" <laughs> That's it. That's as far as you can go. Now we have options because consciousness is there. But yes, true. <clears throat> a service is extremely important. Service has been looked at lately. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because Aristotle, 2,300 years ago, said that the hedonic life was not enough, that the life of pleasure for pleasure was not enough, that we needed what he called eudaimonia, which is you is good in, in Greek and daimonia is spirit, so good spirit. And he said that the good life required meaning in the joy and service that you provided. So you have to have meaning, joy, and service, and purpose. So, okay, that sounds really good and everything, and uh, that sounds, but what, what is the science behind it? Well, lately, there's been some work done, which is very specific to the immune system. It's called CTRA. These are, these are um, in, in the immune system, these are responses that you have against adversity. Cells that, that are about 21 to 40, uh, that uh, CTRA means uh, conserve transcriptional response to adversity. And these cells, these genes uh, in the cells, will then trigger inflammation, antiviral, and antibodies. Okay, so that's really, or anti-inflammation, depending on what, that's really good for, for adversity. So what they did is they checked people, they did psychological tests to see who are more hedonic and more eudaimonic. And then they measured the CTRAs of, the both, of both groups. The people that were more eudaimonic, which is to your point of the service, had better CTRA, which means they have better response to adversity than the people who were hedonic. So Aristotle was right. 
But the interesting thing is that when they measured the level of happiness on both sides, both were the same, but the immune system and the brain could tell the difference. This is all interesting because it seems that inflammation, we, we see, we demonize inflammation a lot. And I say this because when somebody's playing a sport and they hurt themselves, they immediately bring the ice to reduce the inflammation. But isn't the body telling us, leave me alone, I'm doing my thing, I'm just creating a given heat to this area to transport more, you know, the, 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 the white blood cells, the blood flow, etc. Et or where somebody has a fever. I know if you go up by 104, you need to do something about it. But what do people do? They take anti-fever or lowering fever, lowering medication. Why is it that we do the opposite of what our body wants sometimes? Well, part of it is to to relieve uh, pain and to relieve the uh, the response. But here, if you have a, an inflammation because you broke your leg or because you have a a uh, um, some kind of a pathogen, then that's an acceptable inflammation. Right. But these inflammations are are biosymbolic inflammations. These are inflammations caused by by the way that we think because the immune system can't tell the difference. If you say you're stupid. It's the same as if you have an infection. But when they say you're stupid, you don't have an infection. So it shoots out all these molecular uh, uh, responses uh, of, of inflammation. And they don't know where to go. And that's what begins to cause then illnesses and problems. Because it's not functional. It's something that's dysfunctional. But it's, but, but it's the same as, as if there were actual an actual pathogen or an actual uh, breaking of tissue. And that's the, the the amazing thing about it, at least to me it is. So if you're you're producing molecules of inflammation, like if you had a pathogen, wouldn't the opposite be yeah. true? If I tell you, oh, you're a handsome man, or you're a beautiful woman, or you're a smart person, a wonderful human being, doesn't that create or, or produce endorphins and oxytocin? Well, yes. <clears throat> and that's one of the things that I was going to talk about, but specifically... There, I call them archetypal wounds, as you know from my work. And there are three ways that a, that a culture can can hurt you. And one is abandonment. The other one is shame. And the third is betrayal. They have different psychoneurological responses. The most studied has been the, the shame. And I have worked clinically using the honor consciousness as an anti-inflammatory. And we're going to be testing that in... in um, in, in Poland now, clinically, I've been able to show it, but we're going to look and see how, how it affects the, um, the um, inflammatory molecules to so see if they have – I believe that, that, that honor has an anti-inflammatory quality, and I've seen it with my patients when I work with fibromyalgia and other kinds of problems. So, yes, th that's true. And, and the four emotions that I use in, in the research that we're doing are generosity, gratitude, admiration, and curiosity. If you have those three – or those four, you're going to have some incredible psychoneurological responses. And that's getting to your point. Gratitude, when you experience gratitude, you're experiencing oxytocin, as you said, which is a, a bonding um, a neuropeptide. When you have admiration without envy, you secrete dopamine and endorphins, which are natural kinds of curiosity and, and, and good feeling type of emotions. Uh, with uh, gratitude and generosity, the same. Curiosity, dopamine. So you're you're secreting in those four: dopamine, oxytocin, uh, serotonin, GABA, all kinds of things that are powerful. So the immune system is set up for you to be a good guy, <laughs> to, to put it to put it simple. But this is how you kill it: if you have gratitude and generosity, which are very similar, you can kill it by a quid pro quo: you give me this, I give you that. I give you this, you give me that, done. You can kill the admiration and the dopamine if you have admiration with envy. And if you have curiosity with fear, you can kill also the, the curiosity, uh, uh, dopamine, and so forth. So look how it kills it, and look how it enhances it. You said something interesting about goodness. Are we predisposed yeah. to goodness? I think so, and, and I think Hoffman has done some work on that. He calls it precursors of empathy. Very early uh, children, uh, uh, infants, number one, they hear crying and they cry. And the thinking was, well, the, with Hoffman thought, well, there might be uh, uh, imitation. 
So they, they recorded another child crying and the infant didn't cry. They recorded the infant's own crying and the infant didn't cry. So he calls it uh, the precursors of empathy. The other studies also show very early, uh, very um, young uh, infants, a video of uh, toys cooperating with each other and toys fighting each other. And consistently, they will spend, the children, will, the infants will spend more time looking at the cooperative behavior than the destructive behavior. So they're, they're precursors there of goodness. But then the culture and the conditions that happen in life can kill it or enhance it. Are you saying that everyone is born a certain way and it is the environment? And this is part of epigenetics. I mean, if you have your great-grandfather who died at the age of 50 uh, of liver, cirrhosis of the liver, and then the son followed the same tracks and became an alcoholic and again and again, but then the great-grandson decided, I'm not going to drink. All of a sudden, it lasted to be 85, 90 years old, and he broke the so-called curse. Isn't that proof? Well, Yes, well, the epigenetics is basically, and to, to your audience, I'll explain it very uh, simply, um, because it's 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 a quite a complex um, uh, process. But Einstein said, if you can't explain something simple, you don't know what you're talking about. So I'm going to try epigenetics. It, before epigenetics, it was thought that that all traits and all the, the the how we are comes from our genetics. It's a DNA uh, expression, and that's fixed. Then 50, 60 years ago, epigenetics comes around and, and begins to look at environmental kinds of things affecting your um, your expression of genes. And it's called, it's in the methylation. It has to do in the uh, in the chromosomes and the way the chromosomes. You, you don't change the DNA sequence. What you change is the, the, the gene expression. So without getting real technical, what's happening is that whatever you learn, it's passed on. But what's passed on is the propensity, not the sentence, not the genetic uh, certainty. It's a propensity to be expressed based on your behavior and your beliefs and your your environment and, and your culture. So for example, people who are, I, I treated a, a kid who was a great grand uh, son of somebody who was in Auschwitz. And this has this been shown that they have a higher level of cortisol than other people because the epigenetic transfer for alert uh, fight or flight is there, but that can be changed as you said. So the good news is that it's very pliable. Just like the brain is very pliable, epigenetics is very pliable. Cortisol. Cortisol. Isn't that something that creates so much inflammation, a stress response? But you know, you said something interesting too. I'm just listening to some of your words and the language that you use, and it just catches my attention. You use the word portals. And I wonder, we live in a society, we, you know, behind the scenes, those behind the scenes can catch our attention with mostly two emotional approaches or maybe portals, ego or fear. If you don't buy this or that, you're not good enough. Or if you don't do this or that, something bad is going to happen. So we're getting alarmed constantly. Are those two considered portals too? Well, they're, they're, uh, they're more um, what uh, in psychology you, you call uh, affordances or uh, or demand characteristics, an environment that that has certain demand characteristics to your portal, and the portal is you, in your in your different developmental levels uh, of uh, of of childhood and and adolescence and so forth. So, for example, the looking at the at the effect of the environment, the uh, demand characteristics is called in psychology. You can have a uh, a, a group, one group. They tell them, look, we're going to give you this pill. And this pill will speed up your heart. And then they go into a room uh, and don't worry about it. And there's a nurse there with a, with a white uniform, a syringe in her hand. Don't worry about it because if you pass out, we can, we can bring you back. That's demand characteristics. They give them a pill. It's just placebo. Another group, they give them the same pill. And they say, look, this pill is going to make you a little sleepy. But if you fall asleep, there's some couches over there and the, lightning is, the light is low, the couches are comfortable. Demand characteristics. The people who are expected to have the cortisol reaction, high blood pressure, um, the, the, the tachycardia, all kinds of things. Some of them do pass out. The others, half of them fall asleep. Totally demand characteristics. So that's what what uh, uh, marketing is all about. They hire people who know what they're doing, 
and uh, then then you're you're a pawn. Well, it was the father of modern propaganda, Edward Bernays, who basically said that propaganda and the media they're the biggest tool to sell a product or keep people in constant state of fear. So those two things, fear and ego. How do we curtail that? Do we have to identify them first? In other words, if we're having dinner at six o'clock at night, shouldn't we just turn off the the news? Otherwise, we're going to have digestive problems. That's one way to teach uh, gastrointestinal and reflux uh, problems. You, You watch the news and you're eating, and that's what you're doing. Why? Because we have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic system. The sympathetic system is like what we're doing now, which is activating everything except digestion. But the parasympathetic is deactivating everything and activating digestion. So if you're, the first thing is saliva, it's the first, uh, uh, or the smell of food, that begins to go into parasympathetic to allow you to, to digest. But if you're watching the news and there's a rape or there's a bomb, or the brain doesn't know the difference. So you're going from sympathetic to parasympathetic, and that's how you develop gastrointestinal problems. And I work with a lot of Fortune 100 uh, executives, and many of them have gastrointestinal problems and reflux and hypertension and things like that, because the sympathetic system is made for one thing, and the parasympathetic is made for another. And that's one thing the centenarians do. Centenarians, when they eat, they eat. They don't, they, they have conversations and that is one of the causes of health. Breaking bread with yourself and people that you love is one of the causes of health. Uh, and so that obviously that's what happens. So uh, people that wake up and the first thing they do is they go to their, their cell phone, their cortisol level is going to be higher for the rest of the day. So that's how we're teaching ourselves to get sick. Before we started the interview, we just started talking about some of the people that I had the privilege to, to interview in their your friends, Dr. Ellen Langer, Dr. Gabor Mate, and I'm thinking of uh, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who passed away unexpectedly a few years ago, uh, who had tremendous focus on the sympathetic or the parasympathetic uh, nervous systems, and it depends on the it depends on where your dominance is. You should base your diet on that. Have you heard that? Uh, yes, I have, uh, but I think it's it's very important to not. Uh, I think it has a lot of value, but it's very important to not make it uh, a universal because con- context is everything. So you have to adjust to a context. You, we do have propensities, no question. That's uh, personalities and so forth. But th- these are just propensities that can be modified. But what you want to look at is what is the environment asking me to do and do I want to do it? Agency comes in. Do I want to do this? The environment's asking me this. An example, a centenarian. Uh, we'll go to the doctor and the doctor will say, you have to take this and this and this. And, the, and he'll say, or they'll, she'll say, uh, what is this for? Well, this is this and it may cause this and that. And he'll say, I'll take this and I'll take this. And if anything happens, don't worry, I'm not going to sue you. So I asked one of the centenarians what happened. And I'm not promoting this because I think medicine has a lot to offer. But I asked him, so what do you doctors have to say? And he very innocently said, I don't know, they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. I mean, the, the average lifespan of the medical doctor is not as high. So if you're somebody over the age of 100, are you really going to be listening to them? Or are you going to be listening to yourself, your instinct, your body? And I wonder if those centenarians really look at their age. Are they really concerned about the chronological age that they have? Or they don't pay attention to it? No, because they one of the factors, or the four factors, and I'll start with that one, has to do with your perception of time. Their perception of time is they have all the time in the world. I talked to one of them. <clears throat> I use these examples because they're just so so fascinating. And he had a, a little uh, vegetable garden. And I said, that's a really nice vegetable garden. It's, a, a, it's very impressive. I said, well, it's, it's nice now. Wait till you see it in three years. And he was 102. <laughs> <laughs> so you project time and space. Another fallacy of uh, gerontology is that they say as you as you grow older, you're going to feel like time is passing faster than than and and it's true for the uh, for the for the wrong reason. People will say time is flying now, and they'll say, well, it's the brain, and uh, is the brain shrinking, or is this? It's none of that. It's a lack of curiosity. What happens is then you they call it the first thirties. Up to about thirty, you have a lot of first. Your first marriage, your first sex, your first heartbreak, your first graduation. After 30, you have less and less and less. If you don't keep your curiosity up, then what happens is that when curiosity is up, 
you feel like you have all the time in the world. When curiosity is down, you think that time is flying. And, and here's how it works. It's very paradoxical. If you're doing something that you like, it's going to feel like it's passing fast. But if you think about it later, you're going to think that it passed slower than it actually did. If you're bored about something, when you're being bored, you feel like it's taking forever. Yeah. But when they ask you later how it was, you underestimate the time. And the reason for that is that the brain pays attention to things that are novel. But then when you have to think about it, you think that it happened a lot longer because the brain had to pay attention to a lot of things. So it, it elongates the perception of time. So centenarians have all the time in the world because they, they go from 30 and they stay at the high level of curiosity. They have a very high level of curiosity. So their time space perception is very, very high on the factor of, of, of time that I, that I uh, measure. Are they essentially not programming their cells to die? In other words, say you're a Greek person in, in, uh, in, in Crete right now, just having coffee with your friends in the morning every single day, and they take their walks, and they don't break their social meetings for anyone. That's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. But do you think by having that lifestyle of relaxation and walking, I think you need to have some motion. I'm not talking about weightlifting and going to the gym six days a week, but at least have some motion. How relevant is that to their longevity? Oh, extremely, because motion, motion consolidates a behavior. You have to have motion to consolidate a behavior. You have to have social connections. You have to have rituals. Ritual is another one of the causes of health, to have rituals. Not routines, but rituals that have meaning, cultural meaning for you. And every centenarian that I've talked to has some kind of ritual. I asked one, I went to Cuba to study on centenarians, and I asked this woman who was 100 or 101, said, I didn't say rituals, I use more like ethnographic, so I don't uh, bias it. I said, what are the things that, that you do that have meaning for you, that you do on a regular basis, that, that you enjoy, and they give you a sense of identity? It's another way of saying, what's your ritual? So, oh, yeah, yeah, I have a shot of rum before I go to sleep every night. <laughs> I asked another man, oh, yeah, I, I have a cigar when I wake up, but they don't abuse any of that. I ask how many cigars do you have? Just one. Why? Because that's all I, I need to enjoy. I don't need any more. The, uh, the woman, uh, how many uh, shots of rum? One. Why? Because that's what makes me feel good. So they don't do it out of fear. It's just a, a ritual has a lot of quality, a lot of implicit quality and meaning that doesn't require any kind of abuse. You abuse what you need. You don't abuse what you love. Ritual. Ritual. So it's not the alcohol. It's not the cigar but it's the looking forward to that ritual every single day. Is that what keeps him alive? The looking forward to something? Looking forward, but also enjoying the moment. Because at first I thought, oh, it's got to be the Cuban rum. So I'm going to look into the Cuban rum and the qualities. <laughs> well, it's got to be the Cuban cigars. But then I, I went somewhere else and something else. So the ritual in itself, the value that it has is that you have an identity with something. You look forward to it, as you said, but you're experiencing it in such a, complete here and now mindful way that it has all kinds of psychoneurological value that uh, that doesn't hurt you now people for example people that that are eating well and their tofus and their yoga and they do it out of fear it doesn't help them you have to do things out of joy out of a ritual not i got to do it because i want to stay healthy that doesn't work are the you saying are you saying that there are some people who go to the gym because they avoid dying because they need to remain healthy. That's why I'm going to the gym or I need to um, practice yoga because I want to live longer instead That's of right. saying, I want to do this because I enjoy it. That's right. Yeah. Because there, there's several components. One is a fear component. If you don't go, you're afraid, but also you're doing it. There's no joy. You're doing it because you're protecting yourself against it. That's a ritual, a, a routine. Uh, when I work out, I, I don't, I work out five days a week. <clears throat> but I don't do anything that I don't like in the workouts. I find machines. I, I find things that I really enjoy. And if I don't like it, I don't use it. I use something else. So that it becomes a ritual of, of joy rather than I got to go to the gym or I got to work out. That doesn't work. That it, It'll keep you fit. I mean, you look good, but you're not going to look good inside. Now, let me ask you this. We live in a world of hyper alarm. And we were discussing this with the fear and the ego because that part is also, I believe, is crea creating inflammation. 
when you turn on the TV and you see, or social media, which is so pervasive now, especially for our children, their, their self-esteem, the amount of suicide. I don't want to, I don't want to get negative, but I have to be realistic. Yeah. When you, when you're looking at, at, at the, the filters that they have on social media and all these girls look at themselves like, I'll never look like that. That creates inflammation. That creates sickness. How can we overturn this? It's a slow process because people have to learn first the damage that it's doing. But also the problem with it is, though, that that peer pressure has a lot of power. And it's not just peer pressure with adolescent. Peer pressure at, at every level of every age, you have peer pressure. And that peer pressure is a way of saying, if you don't comply with groupthink, there's something wrong with you or we're going to exclude you from our world. So you have to learn, and the whole thing that I do is you have to go inward and find out who you are. You have to ask yourself three questions. Who am I? What am I doing here and who cares? And you have to ask those questions. And and of course, who am I is not one me, but the the me that I can always go to to, to find the serenity. What am I doing here? Am I just here to work and, and then go to a nursing home? Or am I doing here, being here for some kind of service or something in addition? And who cares? It's very important. You have to have people that you can count on. The, the, the longest longevity study that has been done at Harvard for over 75 years, they found that the main factor to keep people healthy, in addition to everything else, is to have one person in your life that you can count on. That's it. One person in your life that you can count on. Isn't that proof that one of the biggest tortures that can be inflicted on a human being is isolation. And the fact that you think I can always go to one person gives you an incentive to live to many people. Yes. But also see, you're bringing up some very synchronistic here because you're bringing up the next topic that I want to talk about. The Greeks were very good at, uh, at sentencing people. If you were a, uh, a citizen of Athens, they wouldn't kill you. They, they would banish you. And you, you would go to what they call the prison of nostalgia. And people would die in the prison of nostalgia. So if you if you're not if you don't have the connection, if you don't have the people and you're banished from the group, animals when they're banished from the group, they die. Aristotle died a year later after he was banished from, from Athens. So it's a very important thing. And the prison of nostalgia that they call it is uh, oh, I'm missing my friend, or I'm missing this, or I'm missing that relationships, unrequited love. Many people get sick. Uh, because they don't know how to deal with it, with the concept of, uh, I, I was reading something that they were saying that uh, this article that, that nostalgia is really good. Nostalgia is not that good for you. Uh, Ellen Langer does some work with that. And so have I. Nostalgia is going back to what, what never will be again. You, you have to live in the present and you have to live on what you can change in your life agency, not nostalgia. Nostalgia is not good for you. But what about the people who, for example, my family left communism. And I always heard them talk about, oh, in the 50s, this is how it was, blah, blah, blah. And you could tell that they would change. Or the person who's in his 90s and he's in a, or 80s and he's in a retirement home doesn't speak. You probably have seen the experiment. And all of a sudden they found, they asked him what uh, musicians he liked in the 40s and the 50s. And they put headphones. All of a sudden, the person lit up, lit up, opened his eyes, started singing, and the The caretakers couldn't believe it. They said, I haven't heard this person utter a word in a single month. All of a sudden, he's just moving his hand. And so is nostalgia really bad? Or can you can you transport yourself just like Ellen, Dr. Ellen Langer with that experiment that they brought the people into the, the 1950s with newspapers and TV and the whole little city around them? And after one week only, They measured the phys- the the, the, physic, the physical aspects and the mental aspects, and they actually regressed in time. Some stopped using their their reading glasses. Some developed more muscle. How do you explain that? Well, because the other group explains it. The other group was asked to live in, in a place where in the present time to reminisce about the future, about the past. And the difference is that you have to live as if you are in that place, not talking about it. So what she did is uh, with that group, she had everything looking, as you said, from the 50s, and you had to talk about the 50s. So you were living oh, I see. the memories rather than reminiscing in the in the prison of nostalgia. The others were talking about, and they actually got worse, and they didn't change very much. 
So, and and get, getting back to the person with a dementia, uh, dementia usually affects uh, uh, new memory and so forth, and you remember all things. But then, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't have the opportunity to live as if with the old things. So when when you bring the old things, you're actually living the old things. You're living the music, so it brings you back into a place. So there's a it's a it's a really good question. But the difference is that you it's, it has to be the as if component of it that you have to live it. Uh, I see. And I see. Rather than going back to to the the nostalgia of uh, this is what I had, but I don't have it anymore. There you go. The, the sense of loss. The sense of loss. Sense of loss. I've That's read right. a lot about Finland. I think Finland was the second highest suicide country in the world. And it was during World War II. They suffered so much. They suffered incredibly then. And even right now, they frown upon anybody who, there's no such thing as PTSD. Uh, people don't talk about their problems. They just they have pent up uh, problems. Things are getting better, but that's how it used to be. So I think is what you said. They were probably nostalgic about what they lost if they have to be relocated from parts of Russia into Finland. So is this why they have the sense of loss with nostalgia as opposed to reliving the good times? Yes, the, the, uh, that's the agency, the SF agency. Hans Fehinger talked about that. He was a philosopher, mathematician, and he came up with a model of as if because he said that uh, we really can't grasp all of reality. We, we put out heuristics and we put out premises of what reality is and we live as if that's what it is and that's what counts but if you then no longer living a reality in your in your in your memories and in your uh and things that, that are no longer going to be there and there's nothing you can do about it then that could be a problem another reason is that when you go to the hospices when people go there to die uh, you talk to the nurses and you ask them or at least i ask them So who are the people that are having the peaceful death and, and, and the very um, traumatic deaths? And they tell me that the people that have lived a life that they felt that it was full, with not a lot of regrets because they did something about the regrets, they had a very, um, very peaceful death. The ones who are in a lot of unfinished business, a lot of regrets, Those were the ones who actually had the, 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 the terrible deaths. And what can we do about it? Anytime that you regret anything that you did, what can I do about it now? That kills the potential to be harmful for you. So the fear of death, that's another thing about the fear of death is really the accumulation of regrets. The less regrets, the less you fear uh, your, your death because you're living your life fully rather than regretting your life. I spoke with a nurse years ago, a hospice nurse, and she did, contrary to 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 Butner and and, and Butner and the, the Blue Zones, she did it with people who were dying. She wanted to just see what regrets they had, and most of them said the same thing: "I work too much. I spend less time with my family." You know, if we learn from all these people, just like we could learn from all these centenarians, why can't we learn from those lessons and apply it? to us who still have a chance to live a long life? Because there's a lot of pressure to distract yourself from the present. A lot of pressure to distract yourself from the present. How many people meditate? And by the way, if you meditate and you don't change your default mode, you'll go right back into it. If people meditate and they feel really good and an hour later they're back. The default mode is what needs to change, not the meditation could be just a band-aid if it's not done right. Explain that. What do you mean by default mode? Default mode is the way that we, <clears throat> excuse me, the brain has uh, what's called a default mode, which means that when everything settles, that is how you view the world. That's the, the, the goggles. So if you, uh, for example, are uh, meditating and you feel really good and you're in tune with yourself and all that, that's fine. But if your default mode doesn't change from the world is dangerous, you're going to go back to that default mode and within an hour, you're going to be back into your high level of, uh, of stress. So meditation can help, but you have to change the way that you perceive the world. And those are the four factors that I, that I talked about uh, or I talk about with uh, centenarians. <clears throat> so the four, factors, <clears throat> excuse me, the four factors are, first, the time, time perception, how you perceive time. The second is self-love which something that 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 uh, cultures don't don't like they teach you pseudo humbleness 
The third factor is your perception of, of your health and your wellness. And the fourth factor is your aging components. So you're taught pseudo-humbleness. You're taught a little girl goes to her mom and she says, Mommy, look how pretty I look. You say, no, no, darling, you don't say you're pretty. You let other people tell you. And then when, when they tell you, then you deny it. Pseudo-humbleness and confusion. Centenarians are not that way. I interviewed a woman who was 102 and she was very attractive. <clears throat> and I said, you, you're really very attractive. She said, oh, yeah, I've always been attractive. Ever since I was a little girl, I was attractive. There's no, there's no pseudo humbleness there. <laughs> no pseudo humbleness. So, so some people are being told to be humble, be humble, be humble, be, uh, don't be bashful. I mean, be bashful uh, as a sign of 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 strength. But in re and I'm not talking about being arrogant. But the person, as you said, 102, and she feels like, oh yeah, I've always been attractive. That that's that's frowned up on up on because uh, you you're taught it's 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 a pseudo humbleness because if you say You look good and you think you look good. You want to say, oh, yeah, thank you. But you, oh, no, well, anybody, I, I, that's a really great job. Oh, no, oh, no. That's not that. When I do workshops and somebody will say, oh, that, that was brilliant what you just did. And I said, yes, you're right. It was brilliant. But you know why it was brilliant? Because you can see brilliance only if you're brilliant. So we're co-authoring brilliance mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And that's what it should be. Let's talk about archetypal wounds. That's a very interesting concept. Shame. You say shame causes inflammation. We discussed that. What is the connection between emotion and disease? Say fibromyalgia or maybe even multiple sclerosis. Do you think there's an emotion disease connection here? I think, yes, I think there's an emotion. There's no question there's some genetic predisposition and environment, all that, but, but epigenetically, and you never should blame yourself. Epigenetically, sometimes we set up the environment to express illness or to express the causes of health without knowing it. And inflammation seems to be very important, very uh, um, strong component in almost every illness from cancer to depression. So inflammation is one of the most important things that you need to look into in your life, inflammation. And the, as you said, the shame, the I'll go through all three of them so you can see what uh, the audience can see what I'm talking about. Inflammation is basically hot. It's a hot emotion. You notice when people are, were um, shamed, they turn red. They're not cold. They're red. And that is the, the histamines and the inflammation coming out as if you're having some kind of pathogen out there. So the emotion is an emotion that of shame that feels like you want the, the earth to swallow you. You want to diminish yourself. You notice people bring their shoulders down to, to shrink. Where pride, you bring it out and you bring your chest out. And the psychonominology of it is, that the, as I said, the inflammation, the uh, more than, than actually the stress hormones, inflammation more than the stress hormones. Ab abandonment is cold. It's a cold emotion and you have constriction of your cardiovascular system. And, and, and it's a constriction which calls coldness. And the feeling is, A, a very strong sense of isolation, a very strong sense of, of aloneness, as you were saying, and it's cold. The, um, the third one, which is betrayal, and this is the hardest one to deal with because you, you question always love, and you question the tricking, betrayal is hot. And the emotion, it's always anger. You can, you can ask a child, uh, hey, look, I'll give you this little toy if you, uh, if you do a dance for me. They do the dance. And you don't give them a toy, you trick them. That's a betrayal. They get angry. They don't get ashamed or they don't get abandoned. But here's the interesting thing. You have constriction on both sides. When you have constriction with fear, you have that abandonment, the cold constriction. When you have constriction with anger, you have you have hotness. So look at the difference how you can constrict and psychoimmunologically coming from different emotions. Can we equate stress with sprinting well, let me explain in other words we sprint as a survival mechanism to escape say from danger we're wired that way but we are not designed to sprint the whole day which would be the equivalent of chronic stress stress is a biological and psychological response experience on you know encountering a threat that we feel we don't have uh, the resources to deal with and when i say responses i mean alarm resistance exhaustion I think understanding these different responses and how to relate to each other may help us cope with stress. But what happens to us 
Mario, if that response lingers long term? Well, let me use an example, uh, sprinters and, and marathon runners. You look at marathon runners and, and many of them look like they just came out of a concentration camp. They're not very yeah, healthy right? because it's a constant uh, um, peak performance, peak performance. And the, the, the heart doesn't like that. Sprinters, <clears throat> when used properly, they just sprint and they stop. They're muscular, they're strong, they have better cardiovascular. So what you want to do is you don't want to be a sprinter all the time and you don't want to be a marathoner all the time you the sprinting is for short term uh, burst training is one of the best ways to to do cardiovascular training better than aerobics and a burst training is you you can walk you can run you could have whatever you do it for 90 minutes 90 seconds as fast as you can and then you slow down for 30 seconds or 60 seconds, 60 seconds. in those resting periods you begin to secrete human growth hormone which repairs uh increases your muscle mass great for the cardiovascular system. So everything has its place as the idea is, I guess, the answer to what you were asking. Is stress a response or stimulus? What was that? Is stress a response or stimulus? Well, stress is a response and the stress is totally interpretive. It's, 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 there are very few things that are automatically reflex uh, uh, fear, for example, spiders and sometimes uh, snakes, but everything is culturally um, contextualized. So for example, you and I are talking now and our context is we're, we're doing an interview and we're talking about mind-body science. A lion shows up behind you and you're going to have a stress reaction. Is a lion a stressor? No. If I was talking about uh, training a lion, you would say, hey, here's the lion so we can train him. So stress is an interpretation of an event that in some cases it has to be, if it's fear-based or whatever, it has to be functional, but it's an interpretation. Uh, also, uh, some scientists talk about, uh, okay, there's some there's some real stressors here, crowding, loud noises, and, um, and, and extreme cold. It depends. If you're a teenager and you go to a heavy metal concert, there's crowding and it's extreme um, loudness. No problems. If you're a Tibetan Lama, you can sleep out in the in the cold where other people would die, and they just shake off the the snow and they get up and no problems. So it's very contextual. So stress is a contextual response with a lot of cultural um, types of uh, interpretations and loading, a lot of cultural loading. I don't know why I was visualizing a Tibetan monk inside of a heavy metal concert. That that wouldn't happen. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> is stress an emotion or a response? Well, it's a response. It, it, stress at, at the most basic level is really hormonal. You're having what what's called the uh, uh, the the axis, the hypothalamus pituitary to uh, hypothalamus pituitary adrenal. That that's a you get from the brain. You get a a, a signal from the from a, the amygdala, which picks up on on any kind of fear or any kind of things that, that that's dangerous. It sends information to the hypothalamus, hypothalamus releases, that's at that level. But then you have emotional interpretations of what's going on, and that adds to or decreases the, the, uh, the axis, depending on how you deal with it. So for example, you're driving, and somebody, you're com comfortable, you drive, somebody gets in front of you, and you get all upset, and you get angry, and you could actually say, okay, This is a signal that I want to be very careful with what I'm driving, where I'm driving. You can get angry because righteous anger is another one of the causes of health, which means anger that's appropriate to a condition where your innocence or, or your goodwill has been affected. But then you, then you, you let it go and you say, okay, now I'm going to use this signal as, turn, as something to turn the good uh, music on, do a little relaxation when I'm driving and being more careful. So this is a signal to be better. But what do most people do? Not only do they curse the person and they get angry, but they can't wait to get to work so they can tell their story and I'll victimize each other. Look what happened to me. Oh, that's nothing to yesterday. So what you're doing in all that time, cortisol takes a while. You, you get epinephrine and epinephrine. When you put your hand into something hot, that's not cortisol. That's that's the adrenaline and the, uh, and, and the norepinephrine. It's a reflex. Cortisol takes a while to come out. So you're letting cortisol come in, 20 to 30 minutes, cortisol starts uh, uh, rising. So you can actually 
let that cortisol not express itself as much, or you can let it express because you can't wait to work, go to work and tell people what happened to you. That's how we can change these processes by learning the physiology and the cultural components that we have about things. We have to take a break so that you can clear your throat because we've been t talking a lot. And when we come back, I want to discuss the importance of, of letting go. The letting go of yeah. hatred, regrets. It's like having a, a tenant living in your mind for free. You do it for yeah. self-preservation and liberation and more than anything to find peace within yourself. And I still want to talk about the anti-inflammation consciousness. I really want to dive into the centenarians. This is so fascinating. If you really wanted to get the secret to longevity, it's right there. Vivid examples of people. And I'm not anti-doctors, but should I, would I rather talk to a doctor who has a lifespan much, much less than these individuals who have learned the secret to, to longevity? You know the answer. But how can people learn more about your work, your website, your books, Mario? Um, my website is biocognitive.com. And um, my, uh, my books at Amazon, The Mind-Body Code and The Mind-Body Self. But also, you can get uh, over 200 videos free on uh, YouTube and the channel is Dr. Mario Martinez. I do, I put videos up um, almost every two or three days and all kinds of information available uh, to where I discuss many of these concepts and uh, it, it keeps things moving and with my latest thinking. Well, as we know, for the past two plus years, we have lived under a lot of stress, a lot of fear, and I want to be able to, to, to help our audience get away from all of this. The media, every thing that surround us it's almost like this constant state of fear we don't it doesn't have to be that way you want to be conscious about what's happening around you yes but you don't have to be in this state of constant stress and fear which can only contribute to disease stress and less of a happy life but a lot more when we come back with Dr. Dr. Mario Martinez this is Mihalsarek and you are listening to Veritas we'll be right back Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store. For Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.